Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Sabbath. I trust that your hearts have been drawn closer to God through the music this morning. Let's bow our heads for one more prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath morning that we can come together and to open up your word. And I pray in a special way that you would be in our presence, speak through me, and may your name be glorified. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. As you've noticed from the bulletin, the title of the sermon for today is The Prophetic Timeline of Daniel 11. Daniel 11 is, in my estimation, one of the most fascinating chapters in the entire Bible. And if I had one chapter in the Bible to prove the veracity of God's word and the truth and the faithfulness of the sure word of prophecy, I would pick Daniel 11. And obviously we're not going to go through every detail in the next few minutes, but the detail in Daniel 11 proves the truth and the faithfulness of the sure word of prophecy. And I want to read a quote to you from letter 103, 1904, also found in volume 13 of the manuscript releases, page 394. Ellen White tells us, We have no time to lose. Troublous times are before us. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Nearly reached its complete fulfillment. And what we're going to look at today is, what is the prophetic timeline of Daniel 11? Where are we on that timeline? And what does that mean for us as God's people today? So that's what we're going to do. In order to understand the significance of Daniel 11, we go to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 are tied together as one vision, one thought. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, we see that Daniel has a vision given to him in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which is somewhere between 536 and 535 B.C. And it says, this is what Daniel says, he says, the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he, he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. What's important to realize is that Daniel 10 comes immediately after chapter 9, and in Daniel chapter 9, it is revealed to Daniel the timing of the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah with respect to the 2300-day prophecy in Daniel 8. And in Daniel 8, Daniel says, I did not understand the vision, and he fainted. And in chapter 9, the thing that he understood was the first part of the 2300 days, or the 70 weeks, 
the beginning through the first 490 years and when Christ would come. But there was something that Gabriel didn't reveal to Daniel in chapter 9, and that was what was going to happen at the end of the vision of the 2300 days. And so then in Daniel chapter 10, we see that Daniel is fasting, mourning, and praying. Now, there's a couple of things going on. This is taking place in the third year of Cyrus, about 536, or between 536 and 535 BC. What's interesting is that in 537, Cyrus had given the initial decree to start the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And Daniel knew from the vision that he had that that was key to the beginning of the 2300-day prophecy, to the 70-week prophecy, and to the coming of the Messiah. And right about this time, the Samaritans send a false report saying that the Jews are causing all sorts of trouble and that they want to turn against the kingdom of Cyrus. And so now Cyrus is considering whether or not to backtrack on the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and Daniel knows that if that happens, it's going to mess up God's plan to restore and build Jerusalem for the Messiah to come and ultimately for the sanctuary to be cleansed. So Daniel, notice what he does. In verses 2 and 3, he's in mourning for three full weeks. He eats no pleasant bread and so on and so forth. What's interesting is in Daniel chapter 9... Daniel begins to pray to understand, Lord, I thought it was only going to be 70 years in Babylon. How, what, what's this 2,300 years that you're talking about? And within two minutes, if you record the length of the prayer in Daniel 9, Gabriel shows up and gives him the answer. But in Daniel chapter 10, it doesn't happen quite so quickly. Daniel realizes that there's trouble, and he prays for three full weeks, and then you see in verses 4 through 7 at the end of this time that a heavenly being appears. And I'm, I'm going I'm to go faster. This is, this is just an introduction. And you see the description of this heavenly being in verse 6. Eyes like lamps of fire, feet like polished brass. This is the same description of Jesus in the book of Revelation. So, in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel shows up to help Daniel understand what's going to happen at the beginning of the 2300-day prophecy. But in Daniel chapter 10, as Daniel receives a vision, it's Jesus Christ who shows up. So, if Jesus is the one who shows up, how important do you think this prophecy is? It's obviously very important. And then as you go on down... Then we see that an angel shows up after Daniel has the vision, or to help Daniel understand the vision that he's seen. And what's interesting is, in verses 12 and 13, Daniel is told that this angel contended with the prince of the king of Persia, which we believe to be Cyrus. This was the king. So for 21 days, unbeknownst to Daniel, this angel, this heavenly being, after Christ appears, tells Daniel, I've been contending with the prince of the king of Persia for 21 days because it was in the hands of Cyrus to get the 2300-day prophecy going. 
And yet Cyrus is under the influence of a false report and the work of the devil to keep this from happening. And unbeknownst to Daniel, Daniel's praying for three full weeks. And during that entire time, the angel contends with Cyrus. And at the end of that three weeks, guess who showed up to take care of business? Michael. And we're not going to do a Bible study, but Michael is Jesus Christ. And you can clearly prove that. Michael shows up. Now here's what's interesting to me. Daniel prays for three full weeks. Finally, after three weeks, Christ says, I'm going to answer that prayer. He's been so persistent, so steadfast. I'm going to come and answer his prayer. And then in verse 14, the angel tells Daniel, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. Which reminds us of the many days of the 2300 days. And in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 10, Daniel understands that the time appointed for this vision was long. So here's what we see. Daniel chapter 9, beginning of the 2300 days, Gabriel comes immediately when Daniel prays. And Daniel was basing his prayer on the study of prophecy from Jeremiah, that it would be 70 years of captivity. He starts praying, Gabriel comes right away and answers his prayer. Daniel chapter 10, when there's more trouble and there's risk of the decree being taken back, Daniel prays for three full weeks. And it takes three weeks of persistence for Michael to come and with his strength and power, he turns the heart of the king of Cyrus so that that prophecy can continue unabated. And Here's a key practical point for us. As we go down to the end of Daniel 11 and we see certain things that need to take place to get to the final events, do you think that two-minute prayers are going to get the job done at the end of time? Look how long it took Daniel to get his answer to understand what the vision was for the end of time. Two-minute prayer gave him an understanding for the beginning of the vision, but not for the end. So a practical point for us, we need to be steadfast and fervent in prayer to understand what is coming upon us. And so what we see then is after Daniel is steadfast and persistent for three weeks, Michael, who is Jesus Christ, turns the heart of the king of Persia, and then from there, the angel can tell Daniel the prophetic timeline that will take place from that time down to the end of the world. So what I'm going to do, and we're just going to run through this briefly, we're going to look at Daniel 11 and see the sequence of events. Now, Daniel 11 follows the same sequence of Daniel 2, 7, and 8, but it's most similar to Daniel 8. Daniel 8 starts with the kingdom of Medo-Persia, so does Daniel 11. That takes us from 539 to 331. And then we have the kingdom of Greece from 331 to 168. 
And in Daniel 11, you can see the division of the four kingdoms. Pagan Rome then reigns from 168 AD to about 476. And that's where I'll leave things off for now. But in essence, without going into really any of the detail, verses 1 through 30 of Daniel chapter 11 take you from 539 B.C. to 476 A.D. with the fall of pagan Rome. That's Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 30. And there's some familiar concepts that come out here. One of the other things that's key is from the division of the four kingdoms in Greece come the king of the north and the king of the south. And that was the Assyrian Empire to the north, the Seleucid Empire, and the southern empire was Ptolemy in Egypt. That was the king of the north and the king of the south. And then as you continue on, pagan Rome, as it replaces Greece, becomes the king of the north. And in the beginning part of Daniel 11, in the first few verses, we also see the concept of the glorious land. The glorious land, in verse 16 is Palestine. And what's interesting is that the king of the north and the king of the south fought many of their battles in that region of the glorious land where God's people resided. Which gives us the idea that the battles or the conflicts between the king of the north and the king of the south through time involve God's people. And we're going to expand on that further. Now... What I'm going to do now is focus in on the part of this prophecy that more directly involves us. In verse 31, we have a transition point in this prophecy. And this is very similar to Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. So we see these concepts being repeated in the book. But in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, this is speaking of the king of the north. And in verse 30, we see that pagan Rome in 476 was destroyed. Verse 31 says, Arms shall stand on his part. They shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice. And they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So here we see... God's sanctuary being polluted, the daily being taken away, and the abomination of desolation being set up. So the question is, what happened in Daniel 11.31? This is 508 AD. This is when King Clovis, a pagan king, made a nominal conversion to Catholicism. And he gave his military power to aid the Catholic Church in Europe. And what you had then was a union of church and state. 
which is the abomination of desolation in 508. And you had the daily being taken away, paganism is removed out of the way. And that's Daniel 11, verse 31. That's 508 AD. And what happens next then, verses 32 through 40, basically describe the rule of the papacy during the 1260 years. And you can see the persecution in verse 33. They that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. And verse 35, some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and purge them and to make them white even to the time of the end. And then in verse 40, the concept of the time of the end comes back. So there's going to be persecution during this period of the rule of the king of the north, which is now papal Rome, to 1798, the time of the end. Now, let me read something to you that is interesting. This is from the same quote I was reading earlier where she says, the prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Then she quotes Daniel 11, verses 31 through 36, which talks about the daily being taken away, the abomination of desolation being set up, the persecution, and the king exalting himself and magnifying himself above every god. And then she says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So then what we see is that what happens in verses 31 to 36, which basically takes us from 508 to 1798, scenes similar will be repeated. And Daniel 11, verses 40 through 45, will explain how those scenes are repeated. So that's what we're going to look at. Now, just one quick point. In Daniel 11, verse 36, this verse says, The king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. It's interesting, scholars believe that Paul was quoting from this verse in 2 Thessalonians 2 when he was talking about the man of sin. He uses the very same description. And it's in that passage that Paul says, He who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. And so all of that ties in together. Now, where we want to focus our time, and that was a, a pretty quick rundown, is from verses 40 to 45, and it's very hard to do that in a few minutes, but we'll try. So we'll put 1798 over here now to continue our diagram. So at the time of the end, this is verse 40, it says, the king of the south shall push at the king of the north. So here's the king of the north being pushed at. This is language that would parallel the deadly wound in Revelation 13. And you ask, what happened in 1798 for the king of the south to push at the king of the north? Well, in 1798, France, which is the same France that led the French Revolution, that, led, that had the spirit of atheism, takes... Pope Pius VI captive, he dies in captivity, and the papacy loses its civil power.
power, so to speak. It no longer has control over the state. And in this passage, with the king of the south pushing at the king of the north, France fits that description. In earlier in, the, in Daniel 11, Egypt was the king of the south, and it's interesting that France is described as Sodom and Egypt in Revelation 11 to describe the French Revolution. So, deadly wound happens in 1798. This is starting to get closer to our time, so things become more interesting. And immediately after it mentions that the king of the south pushes at the king of the north, then it says the king of the north shall come against him, the king of the south, like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. And again, just to point things out in the interest of time, if you go to 2 Kings 6.15, chariots and horsemen are used to describe military power, and ships in 2 Chronicles 9.21, Proverbs 31.14, and in Revelation 18 are used to describe economic strength. So the king of the north, after 1798, comes back against the king of the south with military and economic power. And the question is, when did this happen? Well, did France remain the king of the south after 1798? If you study the history, you will see that it was the communist socialist ideals that eventually were manifested in the Russian Revolution that continued the principles of the king of the south with the Communist Manifesto in 1844, the Russian Revolution in 1917, and Joseph Stalin taking over Russia during World War II and the Soviet Union and all of that. And then there's other countries as well. If you study history, and this is a... We'll go by this briefly. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan and the United States teamed up with the papacy to bring down communist Europe. And how did they do it? They did it with the financial and military strength of the United States of America. And with the financial and military strength of the United States of America, and by the way, you can read about this in Time magazine. It's a, an article entitled, A Holy Alliance by Carl Bernstein. He was one of the two authors of... Um, or one of the two reporters that was in Watergate, but he wrote this article, The Holy Alliance, it's February 24, 1992, and Reagan was quoted as saying one of his earliest goals of his presidency was to recognize the Vatican as a state and to make them an ally. And what's interesting is that Reagan goes to Berlin, he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, and by 1989, that wall comes down. So, 1989, we see that communist Europe takes a hit from the king of the north. So now, things are getting even closer to the time that we live in. And it says, he comes against the king of the south with a whirlwind, with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. He shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. And then in verse 41 it says, He shall enter also into the glorious land 
Many shall be overthrown, the word countries is supplied, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. So what happens next? Sometime after 1989, and I'll put a question mark, the glorious land is entered into. Now, in the earlier part of Daniel 11, the glorious land was Palestine. So here we have Palestine. Here we have the Mediterranean Sea. And in Daniel 11.45, it talks about the glorious holy mountain. And I'm going to suggest to you that if you look at Joel chapter 2, verse 32... And Psalms 48, verses 1 and 2. Let's actually go there. Psalms 48, speaking of the glorious holy mountain. Psalms chapter 48, verses 1 and 2 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So here we have the holy mountain, which is Mount Zion which parallels the glorious holy mountain in Daniel 11. So Mount Zion. And then let's go to Joel chapter 2, verse 32. This gives us a little bit more of a description of what Mount Zion, which is the glorious mountain, represents. Here in Joel chapter 2, what's interesting, it talks about the last days, and then in verse 32 it says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant who the Lord shall call. So Psalms 48 says, The glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion. Joel chapter 2 says, Mount Zion is Jerusalem and the remnant. So here we have the glorious land, which is all of Palestine. We have the glorious holy mountain, which is in Jerusalem, which is about here. And we have the Mediterranean Sea over here. Now here's my point. The glorious holy mountain, if it represents the remnant, that group represents a worldwide people. So it would only make sense that those who were outside of Jerusalem in Palestine, which is symbolic of something, would also represent something worldwide. Does that make sense? The glorious holy mountain represents the remnant, or God's people in Jerusalem. And that's a worldwide group of people. And the glorious land represents people who are outside of the glorious holy mountain. And yet, there is similarities being drawn with the glorious land earlier in Daniel chapter 11. Here is, and I know there's a discussion and debate about what the glorious land is, and I don't want to get into a big debate over that, but here's what I'm what I believe. When the king of the north, which is the papacy, enters into the glorious land, that means that it's going to have a direct effect on God's people. Here's how. When Reagan and the United States teamed up with the Soviet Union to bring down 
communist Europe. That did not really have a direct effect on God's people. What it had was a socio-political effect on those who were suffering under the tyranny of communism. But, and it actually opened up the doors for God's people to go to those countries and to witness and all of that. And here in the United States, we were able to continue to worship God as we choose to do so. However, when the king of the north enters into the glorious land, he's already the papacy. So the, pap- the people under the king of the north are under his dominion, the, those who are in the papal power. But when he enters into the glorious land, that means that this is going to have an effect on God's people. And as I've studied this, as you follow the sequence of events, this would represent to me the beginning phase of the National Sunday Law. Because when the National Sunday Law takes place, God's people are going to have a choice to make about which side they are on. And this involves God's people in Babylon who are called to come out, and it will also involve God's people who will be tested about whether or not they are going to stay in or go out. Now, here is, here's, what, here's then what I believe is a key point. <clears throat> We've seen a fulfillment of prophecy in 1989, and the Soviet Union actually fell by 1991. Berlin Wall came down in 1989. So in 1989 to 1991, we see major fulfillments of prophecy in Daniel 11. That's 191 years between 1798 and 1989 in verse 40. Whereas up until that time, we're talking much longer periods of time. So if that is true... That means that we are very close to final events. And yet we, as God's people, have a part to play in this. Now, I'm just going to give you a brief diagram of the sequence of Sunday laws according to how they develop. The Sunday law comes in stages. The first stage will be a day of rest for everyone where we are told not to work. And in Testimonies, Volume 9, page 232, Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 551, Ellen White tells us this will be the time to go out and do medical missionary work. Everyone gets the day off. She says, don't stir up the hornet's nest and intentionally work on Sunday to try to make people mad. Just go out and do medical missionary work. No problem. So, you know, this, this phase isn't too troublesome, but she also says that's the time to leave the cities. Then, things get a little bit tougher. Then they tell us, not only do you need to be off on Sunday, you need to keep Sunday. Now, if you want to keep worshiping on Sabbath, that's fine, but you need to also observe Sunday. And Ellen White talks about this in Great Controversy, page 608. Then it becomes more... The third phase is you cannot worship on Sabbath. And 
And then, and, and the, let's see, the reference for that is Great Controversy, page 607. And then, we all know the last one is the death penalty. You can see that in Revelation 13. And you also see it in Great Controversy, page 604. That is the phase, the phases of the Sunday law. So as the papacy enters into the glorious land, we're at this initial phase of no work. And then what's interesting is things start to speed up. You know, Ellen White commenting on the prophecy of Daniel 11 in Testimonies, Volume 9, earlier in the chapter says the final events will be rapid ones. So I believe when the papacy enters into the glorious land, it's not going to take long. Notice it says, These shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Moab and Ammon, they were the illegitimate children of Sot, of Lot, excuse me. Um, Edom was the descendants of Esau. These are people who are related to God's people. And in Isaiah 11, we see that it's Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites who hear the call of the message of the Sabbath and they come out of Babylon and they join God's people down here. And they, they lived actually over in here. So papacy comes into the glorious land, establishes a Sunday law, but some people escape out of his hand. Others, like Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians, join forces with the papacy. And you know, I was talking to Mark Swearingen about this. You remember him. He was our restoration speaker, and he's written a book on Daniel 11. He was telling me that as he looked at the Libyans and the Ethiopians, you see that at times Libyans and Ethiopians were faithful, and then at other times they were unfaithful. So this suggests that the Libyans and the Ethiopians could be, and I'm still studying this, could be people who were with God's people and then they leave. Now we know that's going to happen. Great Controversy, page 608 says, as the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its Spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. So that's a warning to us. Let's be faithful to this message. And then verse 44 and 45 talk about tidings out of the east and out of the north. And then the papacy goes forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And then verse 45, he plants the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So the papacy plants his, the tabernacle of his palace. This is the union of church and state between the Mediterranean Sea and Mount Zion or Jerusalem. Sea represents people, union of church and state, God's remnant church right here. This will be the dividing test at the end of time. And by this point, notice what the king of the north is doing. He is going forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So by this time, we have reached the phase in the Sunday law of the death penalty. It's not just, hey, you can, you know, don't work on Sunday. It's like he's going out to destroy those who are giving a message that he doesn't like. And it's the message uh, from the east and the north 
This is the loud cry message. This is the sealing message, which includes the Seventh-day Sabbath, and it goes directly against the push for Sunday that the King of the North is making. And verse 44 reminds us very much of Revelation 12, 17, where it says, the dragon was wroth with a woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And in verse 45, we see, finally, the tabernacle of the palace being planted. And then chapter 12, verse 1, we see that Michael stands up. And so we will make our timeline over here. Somewhere over here, close of probation, Michael stands up. This is the same Michael who came and solved the dilemma in Medo-Persia when Daniel prayed for three full weeks. When he came, game's over. Cyrus gets back on the side of God, and the vision goes forth. When Michael stands up, look who he stands for. He stands for the children of thy people. So he stands for God's people. So Michael is going to stand for every one of you who is faithful to God during that crisis. And then then it says, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since... There was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So God's people will be delivered. But notice, they go through Jacob's time of trouble. So here's what I would suggest to you. Ellen White says the third angel's message does not need time to give it strength and where we are in prophecy, we see 1798 and Daniel 1140. We also see 1989 to 91 with the fall of communist Europe. And then the next thing we see is the king of the north entering into the glorious land. Now here's the thing. When the king of the north enters into the glorious land, by that point, we will have made our decision which side we are going to be on. And at that point, The four winds are going to be released. God's servants are going to be sealed. And God will have his 144,000. And the loud cry will go out. But if you look at Revelation chapter 7, the thing that's keeping us from getting from Daniel 11.40 with the fall of communism to the king of the north entering the glorious land, is that the servants of God need to be sealed in their foreheads. So there's a roadblock to this prophecy. When that roadblock is removed and the king of the north enters into the glorious land, the final movements will go very quickly. You'll see the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites coming out. You'll see some of God's people, the Libyans and the Ethiopians, leaving. You'll see the loud cry. You'll see the the close of probation. And then you'll see Jesus come. And it's not going to take long. Now, there's plenty more that I could have said. But I'll say this, you know. It would be neat to see... God's people here in Loma Linda and and around the world start to get really serious about knowing what our message is and what we are are going to pass through before Jesus comes. We're talking about the latter rain being poured out, receiving the seal of God, passing through Jacob's time of trouble, which Ellen White tells us is worse in reality than an anticipation. 
And it would be nice to see God's people, you know, let's just say here in Loma Linda, you know, young people forming Daniel 11 study clubs. Wouldn't that be neat? People forming Revelation study clubs. We're going to get together and we're going to study our message for the last days. And we're not just going to listen to one or two people talk about what Daniel 11 could be or what the glorious land might be about and the daily this and the glorious holy mountain. We're going to know for ourselves. Every person in this room can give a Bible study on Daniel 11, Revelation 13, 17, and so on and so forth. That is what God is calling his people to do. We are to know this message. Because this message in Daniel 11 lays out very clearly what God's people are going to go through at the very end of time. And if that's the case, we need to know what that message is. And I will just close by saying this. It's interesting that God's people are described as the glorious holy mountain, which is, in, which is Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. And... Those who overcome, those who are delivered, the 144,000 in Revelation 14 are described as standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. There is a heavenly Mount Zion, a heavenly glorious mountain that we are going to. This prophecy, which takes us to the close of probation, is simply to get God's people to Mount Zion in heaven. And when God has a group of people that are ready, the king of the north is, in, is going to enter into the glorious land. God will pour out his power in latter rain measure on his people. The loud cry will go forth. The final events will take place. Michael will stand for his people and we will see Jesus come. And we are not long away. What I'm saying is, is that after the fall of communism, there's only one more step in this prophecy for the last events to take place. Once the king of the north enters the glorious land, that's it. It's going to go fast. We don't know when that's going to take place. I'm not here to set time. I have no idea when it's going to be. I hope it's not another 191 years. We as God's people need to get serious and ready for the Lord's coming. So I challenge each one of us today, let's study Let's study to show ourselves approved and to be ready to meet the Lord when he comes in the clouds. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of Daniel 11 and 12. And we thank you for Michael, how he came to get the vision in motion and also that he stands for us at the end of when probation closes. May we be found faithful. May we be found written in the book. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.